0: Welcome to the Dhamma Podcast. The audio recording that follows was from a talk given by Paul Fleshman in Barcelona, Spain in May of 2006. The talk has been edited to be English only, excluding the Spanish portion of the talk. This podcast will be updated monthly with additional archives from Hesenguenca's talks and question and answer sessions, as well as other speakers discussing aspects of Vipassana meditation as taught by Hesenguenca. This podcast is sponsored by Pariati, a non publisher that offers written, audio, and video content and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information regarding Pariyati, please go to www.pariyati.org. That is www.p-a-r-i-y-a-t-t-i.org. For more information on vipassana meditation, including a schedule of courses taught throughout the world, please see www.dhamma.org. That is www.dhamma.org.
1: I'm very happy to be here tonight because it gives me an opportunity to repay a debt of gratitude that I've been carrying for a long time. When I was a young man, there was no meditation at all in the United States. I knew I was looking for something, but I didn't know really what I was looking for. I started reading all the great spiritual works of humankind. Some of them were appealing, some of them were not. But I found some old spiritual books translated into very beautiful English. The English was more filled with spirit and wisdom than any other English I had read. Does it surprise you to hear that the translator of this of the old books into this beautiful English was a native speaker of Catalan. (laughs) This great translator was Juan Mascaro. He was born in 1898 in Majorca. He became one of the great Sanskrit and Pali scholars of the 20th century. Sanskrit and Pali are two ancient languages of India. And he lived in Sri Lanka where many of the ancient Pali texts are kept. In those days, Sri Lanka was part of the British Empire, so it was an English-speaking country. He then married an English woman and lived the rest of his life in, in England. But he always insisted that his knowledge of language came from the poetry he had learned in Catalan. For many years, after I read his books, he and I corresponded, and we became good friends through the mail. Shortly before he died, I visited him in England but I consider him one of my great teachers and therefore I have a debt to the spirit that is contained in the Catalan language which he was able to transmit into English. I want to tell you about Vipassana meditation from the standpoint of a meditation that combines realism and idealism. Sometimes people think of meditation as something otherworldly or unrealistic. But I'm a student of the sciences, of medicine, and I'm a person who was born into our nuclear era. When I was a two-day-old baby, the first nuclear weapon was dropped. I don't live in a naive world. At the same time, sometimes people think idealism is foolish. How can you be idealistic in a world full of danger and suffering? Before I came to Vipassana, these two sides of me were in a tug of war. On the one hand, I saw how difficult and filled with suffering human life can be. On the other hand, I was young and idealistic. There's a beautiful quote from the Greek author Nikos Kazantzakis, who wrote Zorba the Greek. That was a novel and a movie. Kazantzakis said, Happy is that person who believes they were born to remake the world. Woe to that youth who does not have some madness. What kind of madness should youth have? A young person should believe that they can do something that has previously been considered impossible. Because each individual is transient and not very powerful on their own. But we gain our meaning by joining universal rhythms. So it is the duty of every person to understand their historical era and then to assign all of your energy to one small task. The most important thing is never to deny the idealism of your youth because there was no meditation in India, and because I had been inspired by writers like Juan Mascaro. When I finished my psychiatric training, my wife and I returned to India, where I had been previously, and we sought out something that might contain the kind of wisdom that Juan Mascaro had translated from the old books. We encountered many foolish things, we encountered many superstitious things. But we finally came upon a teacher whose teaching we've been following now for over 30 years. The teacher's name was Mr. Goenka, which is spelled G-O-E-N-K-A. And he was teaching Vipassana meditation. And he said that his teaching had the following qualities, which were the ones that appealed to me. First thing is, the teaching is for free. That was very important to me not for any socialistic reason. Everybody has the right and the obligation to work and charge money for what they do. I've worked my whole life as a doctor, and I've gotten paid for that. But meditation is different. It's not a job. Meditation is something that is transmitted from person to person in an act of friendship. For example, if someone has a restaurant... You go to the restaurant, they feed you, and very fairly, they charge you money. But suppose one night your friends say, come on over to dinner. Then at the end of dinner, your friends say, you owe me 15 euros. <laughs> you know these people are crazy. So this thing that's happening in the West where people claim they're teaching meditation and are charging money for it, that's crazy. So, the fact that Mr. Goenka was teaching Vipassana for free told me that he was truly a representative of the old traditions. Another thing Mr. Goenka emphasized was no conversion of religion or costume. You don't join a certain kind of dressing, you just remain your ordinary self. A third important thing about his teaching, he said it was practical for people who live and work in the world. He himself had once been a businessman. He was married. He had children and grandchildren. His teaching was not about withdrawing from the world. Most importantly of all, he said that his teaching would lead a person to experience universal psychological truths. That was of great importance to me because I'm a psychiatrist. But it was also important to me simply because I'm a human being. I want to know that I'm not living a delusion. I want to live the truth. But what is the truth? Everybody differs on what they think the truth is. So I decided to give Vipassana a try. It's not easy to take the leap. In order to learn Vipassana, one has to agree to go away for 10 days to a Vipassana course and spend 10 days in residence learning It's a big investment of time and energy, and there's always a little bit of skepticism or distrust in a new student. You're putting yourself in somebody's hands for 10 days, can you really trust them? On the first night of the course, you're asked to take some vows. One vow is to live in noble silence for 10 days. Noble silence means you can talk about Vipassana to your teachers there but no talking to anyone else about anything else. In those days, silence seemed kind of scary to me. But today, I can tell you that silence alone is one of the great gifts of a 10-day course. Just think, 10 days without any cell phones. All the people who've been persecuting you over your telephone have to go away and leave you alone. Another set of vows you have to take are moral vows not to kill, steal, lie, not to commit sexual misconduct, which for ten days means you live alone in complete celibacy, and not to take any intoxicants, which means no alcohol, no recreational drugs, and no tobacco. In the beginning, I thought these vows were quaint, old-fashioned, moralism. I learned why they're so important. I'll refer to that before this talk is over. You start Vipassana meditation with a simplified uh, beginner's form. You practice this beginning form of meditation for three days. It just consists of natural observation of your breath going in and coming out. Of course, the directions are more specific, exact, and they differ slightly every day. So I'm simplifying slightly just to speak the whole thing in one hour. But basically, you're asked just to observe and just to observe your breath. What could be easier? The only problem was I found it totally impossible. I've always had very good concentration. I can concentrate very well on my books, on my reading, on my writing. But when I was asked to concentrate on my breath, I couldn't concentrate even for one second. An explosion seemed to go off in my mind. So many daydreams, so many thoughts. My mind was like a rabbit. The faster you run after a rabbit, the faster the rabbit runs. Everyone has this problem at the beginning of learning Vipassana. Why can you concentrate on many things in life, yet when you start concentrating on meditation, it's very hard. The reason is that when we concentrate in daily life, we're always concentrating on an object that stimulates our nervous system. I read a book and words and ideas flow through my eyes into my brain. I watch a movie, I listen to music, I drive a car. All of those things send stimuli into my nervous system. In daily life, when we say concentration, what we really mean is concentration upon irritation of the nervous system. There's nothing happening. There's no stimuli. There's no irritation. Usually, when there's no stimulus and no irritation, we just go to sleep. So even at the very beginning, meditation is an introduction to an entirely new form of consciousness. Pure consciousness without any content. Wakefulness, alertness, yet no stimulation. So your mind rebels and creates stimulation and irritation from within. You start daydreaming in order to stimulate yourself. Millions of thoughts and fantasies. It's so hard simply to be awake, aware and alive in the moment and at rest. But as one practices, one gets a moment of pure concentration. It only lasts a second but it feels like a breakthrough. In that second you understand why so many people love meditation. You're at rest, you're not asleep, you're not daydreaming, you're alive in the moment. You get another moment like this, another moment like this, many moments like this. All the hysteria on your mind can be put aside for a moment and for another moment. It seems that our minds have millions of things in their contents, but most of our mind consists of only four things. One big thing is thinking about the future. Where will I go? What will I do? I want this to happen. Will this happen? Another thing we do is daydream about the past. That was so wonderful. Or that was so awful. I hope it happens again. I hope it never happens again. Another thing we do is have desire. I want this to happen. I want more money. I want a bigger house. I want to make friends. I want more of this. I want more of that. So there's future and past. There's desire. And finally, the fourth thing is fear. I hope this never happens. This better not happen. How would I survive if this happened? As you start meditation, you get freedom from future and past, from desire and fear. But you're not escaping. You're truly alive in this moment. After you practice this introduction to Vipassana, you move to the full technique of Vipassana. In the full technique, You meditate on the sensations throughout your entire body. There's nothing evasive or subtle about the directions. You're taught very clearly and logically. You don't have any doubts about what you're supposed to be doing in this clear vipassana technique. But why meditate on the sensations of the body? There are mantras and prayers and visions Why does Vipassana pick something like sensations of the body? One reason is it's entirely non-sectarian. It's acceptable to anybody, whether they're religious or non-religious. Another reason was shown in the movie by Woody Allen called Annie Hall. In that movie, there's a very fancy Hollywood party. A lot of Hollywood stars are there. Suddenly, one of them goes into panic and makes a desperate phone call. And he says in a a tone of desperation, I've forgotten my mantra. You can't forget to bring your body with you. You can't lock it in your car and leave it with the keys and the cell phone. You always always have your object of meditation with you. When you become a committed and delighted meditator, your meditation goes with you. You're waiting for a bus, you're waiting at airports, you have five or ten free minutes, there's your body. But there's an even deeper reason why Vipassana focuses on the sensations of the body. The mind is in the body. The body and mind are one thing. It used to be thought that the mind was in the brain. But thousands of years ago in India, people noticed that the mind is actually located in the entire body. Suppose you go up to a rose bush and you take one thorn, you stick the thorn in your toe. And then a meditation teacher says, relax and think about a pleasant day on the beach. This proves that your mind is really in your toe. Wherever your attention goes in the body, there's also part of your mind in that part of the body. When you start Vipassana proper, meditating on the whole body and its sensations, your entire intent is to focus on the body. Yet your mind is opened up. You get to see and know your mind as you've never seen it or known it before. The Buddha gave a metaphor for understanding what Vipassana feels like. Vipassana is not Buddhism. Mr. Goenka is not a Buddhist. I've been doing Vipassana for over 30 years, but I don't call myself a Buddhist. Vipassana is for anybody, regardless of what they call themselves. But the Buddha was the first historical teacher of Vipassana. And in the Buddha's words, there's very good guidance about how to do Vipassana meditation. He said, suppose there's a puddle in a hot, dry country like India. In India, it only rains one season of the year. As the dry season progresses, the puddle gets darker and thicker. The water becomes filled with minerals or pollutants. It's dark and airless. You wouldn't want to drink it. But then one day, the monsoon clouds come. The first drop of water of the monsoon rain strikes the puddle. Two things happen when that drop hits the puddle. The first is, as the drop penetrates the puddle, a small amount of light goes into the water with the drop. The second, in the pure rainwater, there's a little dissolved oxygen. With the first drop of rain, light and oxygen begin to enter the puddle. With the second drop of rain, more light, more oxygen. Then the monsoon rains really begin to fall. Light and oxygen begin to penetrate that puddle everywhere. The puddle becomes filled with light, filled with air, and ready to drink. In Vipassana, the mind penetrates the body like water hitting the puddle. Light and oxygen penetrate your body everywhere you get a truly new look at the meaning of your life. What are the great psychological truths that I was promised I would learn even in my very first 10-day meditation course? The first thing is that the body is living, dynamic, and changing. Every second, the body is entirely changing. All the elements, the atoms, the molecules are vibrating and changing. And inevitable. The second truth is that I am not my body and my mind. If this body and mind fully belong to me, I could control it. I get the impression of control because I can make small, insignificant kinds of control. I can say right arm go up and it goes up. But if I say, beard, don't turn gray, it won't listen to me. (laughs) If I say, aging, stop. It's like my disobedient dog. If I identify with my mind and body, it's very unrealistic. We said at the beginning that Vipassana is about realism. Realistically, in the big picture of my life, I cannot control what will happen to me. It is nature, not I, that controls the fate of this body. So a third truth, the first truth is change. The second truth is that I am not my mind and body. The third truth is I'm constantly making myself unhappy by being unrealistic. People who say that meditation is escape and unrealism and daily life is realism are backward. It's because we are unrealistic and expect our body to obey us and go on forever that we suffer. If we're more realistic, we suffer less. The fourth universal truth that everyone can observe right away in their first 10-day course. As soon as I think of other people or other beings with a feeling of love or peace or harmony in my heart, In that very second, I become happy. The source of my happiness is in my attitudes towards all living things. Similarly, as soon as I think of someone with anger or hate, I myself become instantly unhappy. The thing we hate the most in life is our own feelings of hatred and anger. I can't control what's going to happen to my mind and body but in every second that I fill myself with positive and good feelings for others, in that second I can control my happiness. One of the effects of the Pasana meditation that all people experience, but which is particularly important for mental health professionals, is the recognition that all living beings contain the same basic truths. Every living being shares the same fate. We are all born and we all die. Every living being feels joy in the company of their friends. Every living being fears the end of their life. We have a common life with all living things. So Vipassana immediately awakens our identification with all others. There's another story about the Buddha One day he came upon some little boys taking huge logs and trying to pound a snake to death. Snakes in India are truly frightening. Many of them are poisonous and from time to time people are killed by snakes. So on the surface it made sense that the boys were trying to kill the snake. The Buddha did not tell them to stop. Instead he asked a question. He asked them, Why are you trying to hurt someone who's just trying to be happy in the world, just like you? Many times as a psychiatrist, I'm told by people that their thoughts are too shameful to tell me. People may feel they have some secret that would make them less than I am. But I can say after many years of meditation, whatever horrible thoughts you've had, I've had the same thoughts. We can say that meditation, naturally without trying, increases your empathic identification. Another benefit that everybody values, but may be of special value to mental health professionals, is helping us regulate countertransference, the feelings that are stirred up in us by the stirred up feelings of our patients. Vipassana is not an effort to suppress your emotions. When you're sitting still and observing yourself, you can't express your emotions. It's not repression. It's not expression. It's self-observation and self-knowledge. But it's also self-modulation. Modulation Modulation means learning the middle path between expression and repression. Often, (coughs) Often people ask, is meditation a religion? It is not. Then what is it? It's a form of education. We could say this evening we're talking about the Vipassana education. And the biggest part of the education is to know who you are and how to be at ease with that. When people stir things up in you, meditation is a useful skill to help you maintain your balance. This is particularly important to people who may be vicariously traumatized empathic identification, and self-modulation. A third thing that everybody experiences in Vipassana that's particularly useful to mental health professionals is open-mindedness. The first great truth of Vipassana is change, change, change. My body changes, my mind changes, my opinions change, my thoughts change. One day I think, I absolutely know what's right. Five minutes later, I'm thinking, well, maybe. If you observe your mind systematically as a meditator all your life, you stop believing in mere opinions. You listen to the moment precisely. Just like at the beginning of meditation, where you're awake, alert, but without daydreams, meditation helps you be in the company of others and listen to what they're saying, rather than listening to what you're saying inside your own head. When I was learning meditation, it was being criticized in the West as very selfish. You sit still with your eyes closed. You don't care about anybody else. Really, the opposite is true. Meditation makes you sensitive and aware to yourself and to others. The Buddha was asked, how do you balance taking care of yourself with taking care of others? It's true that there is a bit of intelligent selfishness involved with meditation. While you're meditating, you're taking care of yourself. But meditation teaches compassion and loving feelings for others. How do you find the balance? The Buddha said it's like a cow who's just given birth to a calf. The cow is very exhausted and depleted. She's been growing this living being of protein and bones and giving all her nutrition to this little one. And even though she's so depleted, she has to start giving milk right away. As soon as the cow gives birth, she starts to graze. She has to take care of herself. But calves begin to walk right away. The calf can stagger off and fall down. And the calf can't find the udder to get milk. So as soon as the calf is born, the cow has to start taking care of it. Like a cow with a calf, the meditator takes care of him or herself and also takes care of others at the same time. In Vipassana, we learn that everything we think and feel is happening inside of this body and mind. We think we know the world, but really, we just know our own body and mind. It may well be that there are other realities beyond our own body and mind. In Vipassana, it becomes clear that our knowledge is quite limited. But the knowledge of ultimate things beyond ourselves is never given a name. We don't promote any ideology, theology, or philosophy. As soon as people give it a name, they start to fight. We say wisdom is to live with a good heart, to keep examining yourself, maturing and growing, and to remember that the most practical and realistic way to live is to preserve the idealism that tells you to live for something beyond yourself. Here comes the part where I mistreat people in public. Both David and Gustavo have lived in the United States, so they know English very well. But they didn't know they were going to have to translate Shakespeare spontaneously tonight. (laughs) Does everybody study Shakespeare here? No? Yes? Yes. There's a a play called The Tempest. A, A very wise magician is forced into exile by some bad people. The magician gains power over the spirits of the island. Towards the end of the play, his enemies become shipwrecked on his island. Instead of attacking them, he puts on a play in which the spirits are actors. Maybe this is an allegory for the teaching of how to overcome hate or anger with goodness. He scares his uh, former enemies into a realization of the universal truth that we all share the same basic common life. He addresses his enemies as follows. Be cheerful, sirs. Our revels now have ended. These, all of us, our actors, as I foretold you, are all spirits and will melt into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, cloud-capped towers, gorgeous palaces, solemn temples, this great globe or earth, it all will dissolve. And like an insubstantial pageant faded, it will leave not a single thing behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made of. And our little life is rounded with the sleep. Let's stop there and we can have questions. I'm also in the healing um, field and I'm also a, um, a Vipassana old student and I would like you to share with us your professional experience. <laughs> My professional experience. Give it a little... On the surface, I keep the two quite separate. The reason for that is, Vipassana has to be given for free, but a professional is working for money. A professional should be using the education and training that got them the license and degree, and Vipassana doesn't give one a license or a degree. Even though I feel Vipassana is non-sectarian, and acceptable to everyone, still, there are many people who could misinterpret it as disrespect for their own particular religious ideology. For all those reasons, when I work as a psychiatrist, I don't mingle it with Vipassana. At a deeper level, however, the two become one inside of me. It's a complicated story on which I've written a lot. You might want to look at some of the things I've written. But the short form is what I said earlier in this talk. Empathic identification. Knowing that what other people feel, I feel. Modulating my own responses in the therapeutic work so that I'm not imposing my own problems on someone else. And keeping a fresh, open, listening mind. When I was training as a psychiatrist before I ever heard of Vipassana, One of my supervisors told me that the entire profession could be summarized in one word, listen. And then he he amplified that. By listening, I don't mean just being quiet. I mean listen. Vipassana helps me clear my mind of myself so that I can listen.
0: Could you share with us some of the insights of the therapeutic benefits of vipassana, perhaps that you have seen in the psychiatric field?
1: Vipassana is not a form of psychiatric treatment. To take the course, you have to be able to be on your own for 10 days. You have to be able to cooperate, participate, listen to directions, and apply the directions inside your own mind. Not everybody can do this for such a long period of time. One problem could be a person might be subject to delusions of a severely mentally ill person. But even a very healthy person may at times be unable to take a course. For example, someone going through a horrible crisis, death in a family, and that person may be filled with panic. That's no time to start a course. So we don't say Vipassana is a treatment for psychiatric disorder. Vipassana and psychiatric treatment are both important and separate in their own spheres. But all people who do become meditators will definitely experience some benefits from their meditation. There's no point in meditation if it doesn't help. Even the great athletes usually have something wrong with their body, a weak knee or some other orthopedic problem. Those of us who are not great athletes have quite a few things wrong with our body. And in the same way, even if we're generally quite mentally healthy people, we still have many subtle problems in our mind. So Vipassana helps many kinds of people in many different ways because it leads to an integration of the mind with the body through meditation on the body. Frequently, psychosomatic illnesses lessen or even go away. Because it leads to identification and empathy for other people, frequently angry and self-righteous people become easier to get along with. Because it reveals that the thoughts on our mind are the source of our own happiness or unhappiness, frequently impulsive people become more introspective and self-modulating. Frequently very shy people find that the community of meditators is a welcoming and easy community to find friends with.
0: I have a question, a really simple one why, why the course has to be 10 days long, I mean there is no because I mean I'm sharing my life with someone who's doing who's you know taking uh, be part of the courses and uh, I ask a question to her and there is no answer at this stage <laughs> so and really curious because I would like to share that experience. But ten days—it seems to me really a long period. Okay, good.
1: Since vipassana is supposed to make us um, empathic towards others, and since vipassana is supposed to help us be sensitive to the feelings of others, it should increase domestic harmony. <laughs> If it's not increasing domestic harmony, we want to know why. (laughs) The ten days is obviously an educational construction. One of the problems that made Vipassana get lost to the world after it was taught in the ancient days is exaggeration in two directions. Some teachers said, we won't teach Vipassana unless you become a monk and give your entire life to Vipassana. Other teachers started watering down Vipassana and just to please their customers and make a living out of Vipassana, they simplified and diluted it. The 10-day course was the product of long experimentation that allowed both the uh, verbal educational teaching of the material and gives people a real opportunity to practice in a significant and memorable way. We want to create an experience that's um, solid enough so that when you go home, you feel confident that you've understood. Immersion and not a mere intellectual teaching. Ten days seems to be about the time necessary for most people to feel they've really been through it. Thank Thank you, David. Very wonderful.